there's literally nothing I won't say. You've been warned. Hey y'all, I'm Jen. I'm from Oakland and I'm a queer black feminist scholar. This is Darren, hailing from the mean streets of Anaheim. I'm an introvert, a novelist, and a nerd. We're early 30-somethings with three kids and over a decade of marriage. This is a podcast about the realities of blackness and adult life. We do adult differently. This is That Black Couple. Greetings. This is episode 15, the third episode of season two of That Black Couple called When White People Like You. Grab your Prosecco because I'm celebrating that I made it through the winter quarter of my fourth year of grad school. I'm finished. It was horrible and cold and I've been sick for like a month. But have a Prosecco anyway and take a seat. This is Jen. This is Darren. And before we get started, make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at that BLK couple, on Facebook at that black couple, and look us up on the internets at www.thatblackcouple.com. You can stream episodes on Google Play, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And you have to rate us high because, as you all know, I take that very personally. You take that very personally. Yep. I personally take that very, very personally. Not me. Just you. You don't? No. You should. Why? Because. Because what? We need to be rated high. But why would you take it personally? I'm sure they still like you. I take it as a personal affront. If you if you rate me low, then you, you are saying, you know, something about me. Why, baby? Personally. Why, baby? Why? Because this is a very personal podcast. This is Honey. very near and dear to my heart. Honey, I'm sure that if people do not go out of their way to go on iTunes and leave a review of our podcast, they're not saying anything bad about Darren. I'm I'm saying if they don't rate us high, then then I take that very personally. If you rate me low, I, I feel like that's oh, a personal Oh, well, yeah. Attack. If they give me a low rating, then yeah, that is personal. I take that shit personal, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you don't rate me... I mean, I feel some type of way then about we, it. Then we don't like you. But I don't take it personally. Well, then we don't like you and we're not friends. But if you write me low, well then... Oh, well, yeah, then you might as well just go ahead and just disappear. Go away. Yeah, go away. Just... There we go. Poof, just... Just... Like that. In the wind? In the wind. Poof. Yeah. <laughs> so stupid. Start the episode. <laughs> let's Let's get into this episode. Like you said, this episode is called When White People Like You. White people, dear. When white people like white. you. I just want to be very clear about about what I'm saying. Okay. So, yeah, the episode is called When White People Like You. And so, the, the idea for this episode actually came from one of our listeners. Mm-hmm. We have a really great listener. Her name is Jess Growing. Um, she's one of our Patreon subscribers. And if you're not a Patreon sub- subscriber, you should be one. Get your life. You know, get it together. Yes. And... As part of her Patreon subscription, at the level that she she donates to the work that we do, she got to submit a question to our podcast. Correct. She actually submitted two questions that were very deep and thought-provoking. The one that we chose to do first 
is this one about white people kind of liking and supporting our work and how we feel about that. Correct. And so I'm going to read a little bit of the email that she sent to us so so everyone can understand the basis mm-hmm. for this episode. So here's what she wrote. I'm interested in hearing your discussion or assessment of attention for black leaders who are gaining increasing positive responses or loyalty from white audiences since Trump was elected. It may be common to have a feeling of dread when certain people want to appreciate or acknowledge us that we are becoming too accessible or watered down. Why is this person latching onto my message? I don't think this demographic or follower is helping the public image or persona or reputation I'm trying to project. How do you approach working through mixed feelings if you have them with, number one, wishing white people would listen and respect your voice and perspective more, or number two, grappling with this logic. White people are nodding in acknowledgement or approval of me Based on what I know about what blacks have had to do historically to gain white accolades, I must be denying some valid part of my identity or blackness. Would love to hear more about your own professional or personal desires to be heard, truly heard, by a ready to work or ready to learn white audience and your misgivings about whether gaining that audience is worth the inherent risks. Mm-hmm. So like I said, Shout out to Just Growing for this question. Right. Very, very deep question. And I think actually we, we were talking about this prior to the episode. Really actually a timely question very as timely. well. Right. So now that we kind of understand where this idea came from. Right. I'm going to hand it over to you. Of course you are. Because you're trifling. What? You don't want to take it. You know, you don't no, wanna... I'm, I'm, you know, I'm deferring to my better half. Oh, okay. Here we go. Better half. So listen, here's the thing. I think that's a very interesting question, but I think we have to clarify a few things. So the first is we have to clarify what it means when we say, you know, white people liking you. Right. And wrapped up in that statement is this question about desirability is a question around um, status quo upholding. There's questions around power. And I think we definitely have to talk about all of those things in this episode. So I think, you know, we were talking about this and I kept thinking about I, Tonya, and how when we did the Oscars episode, we had not yet watched Itonia, and mm-hmm. now we have watched Itonia. And uh, it's kind of funny because I was thinking about white people liking you and the Tanya Harding issue and how you know she wanted so badly for people to like her. But her being a redneck, you know, not nuclear family, not wholesome imagey white girl made her the basically antithesis of Nancy Kerrigan. And we'll never know the truth around what happened and how they ended up getting wrapped up in the controversy around injuring Nancy Kerrigan. But what we do know is that the media did have this infatuation with making Nancy Kerrigan into this perfect little, you know, cult of womanhood, cult of domesticity, ideal of of femininity and like this wholesome image of the American girl. And that that was positioned in opposition to Tanya Harding. And it's funny because it's not, and I think that this is an interesting narrative because it shows you that it's not like whiteness is the only way through which we can understand this idea of desirability and liking and upholding status quo and power, seeing it articulate itself, right? We see this here with people who are both white, um, Mm -hmm. who are both women, 
who have this difference across class structure, across certain ways that they that society believes that families should be organized in certain ways that people believe that household normativity should operate. And so it's not just through whiteness that we see, you know, the question of what happens when these types of people like me, what does it mean? Am I upholding a status quo? Am I participating in a system? Am I complicit? There are a whole host of systems that we have to take account of and a whole host of ways that social desirability operates to maintain oppressive status quo that often exclude certain people very intentionally. And so I think, I mean, it's kind of random to talk about Itonia or whatever, but I mean, you can think about it when you think about Instagram photos and how the Kardashians have made whole empires, you know, based on their ability to co-opt body parts that are typically associated with women of color. You know, that they as white women can wear certain features that are not natural to them, right? right? And make an entire life, livelihood, and career off of wearing those body parts and become known for it. And also in many ways be seen as the originators of such body parts and have worn them the right way, you know, or have have made them a new thing. You know, they get cornrows and it's like, wow, you're really innovating cornrows. Or they get lip injections and it's like, wow, look at this new lipstick on these beautiful thick lips. And, you know, Kim Kardashian gets a new butt implant. And it's like, wow, look at her butt on the front of Pace magazine. Or, you know, it's just like, here we are. The same features that we see used to exclude, isolate, objectify, and diminish and oppress other groups. You know, this is the very thing that they use to, you know, work through a system that gives them power and privilege. And so I think that there's ways that we have to think about not just, you know, what happens when white people like you, but what happens when social desirability is a process through which we see power articulated. There's a whole bunch of ways we can see that. And then the question becomes, how do we as a person or the people being desired, how do we choose to navigate it? And then how do others, those people who are doing the desiring, how do they see the subjects of their desire? Those are the two things I think we have to get at if we're going to really have this conversation and answer this question fully. Thank you for listening. We are the proud founders of watercoolerconvos.com, a platform at the intersections of blackness, culture, and adulting. We started that black couple to dive deeper into the issues facing young black millennial folks navigating the anti-black, anti-queer, white supremacist world today. This podcast is supported by donations and patronage of our listeners and readers of our blog. You should head over there and check out some of the content when you get a chance. If you would like to become a monthly subscriber or patron and help fund our content, sign up at www.patreon.com forward slash watercoolerconvos. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Please consider giving $5 or $10 per month to help us build our platform and grow our organization. We really want to hire new writers and social media people, y'all, but we can't do that without your help. You can also give a one-time donation at www.paypal.me forward slash watercoolerconvos. All donations are welcome. You can stream the show on Google Play, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. When you listen, please consider hitting that heart button, sharing an episode, giving us a five-star rating, and leaving some dope-ass comments. 
This helps us with our page views and also gives us more listeners for the show. Thank you so much. Let's get back to the show. All right. We back. We back. We back. Don't be finishing my sentence. You know I've been doing that for years. Don't do it. Don't finish my sentence. I mean, no one else would have gotten that. Don't finish my sentence. No one else would have known that the next word after we're would have been back but me. That's a lie. It's a special connection that we share. That's a lie and the truth in in you. So we back. (laughs) And I want to get back to the conversation because this is segment two. We're in the conversation. We're talking about Jess Groen's question. Understanding what it means when white people like you, how to navigate that situation. And in this part, I actually really want to talk about um, her specific focus on when white people like you and what does it mean in terms of your own behavior so like as a black person if a lot of white people are now like championing you and advocating for your work does it mean that you have some now somehow you know sold out right and that's kind of what's implicit in the question and i'm always reminded of audrey lord's work when she says um, the master's tools will never bring down the master's house right like you cannot use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house you cannot use white supremacy to dismantle white supremacy. And this is the commentary that we made at the end of the Black Panther episode. You cannot use imperialism to conquer imperialism. And I think in a lot of cases, what ends up happening when we think about this stuff. So when I think about, you know, white people liking black people or whatever it is, my biggest concern is always about the status quo. The status quo is one of oppression, right? The status mm-hmm. quo is one where... We live in a colonized nation. We are people who are descendants from slaves. We are on land that does not belong to us. We are on land that belongs to indigenous people who were overwhelmingly killed in genocide. And those that still live here are forced to live in conditions that are unfair and in conditions that are disrespectful to the histories through which they have come and the experiences that they deserve. And so for me, I think that when we think about white people liking us, it's always situated in the status quo, right? It's always situated in that status quo. Our status quo is one of exploitation, rape, genocide, oppression. So if a whole bunch of white people are like, yeah, yes, girl, yes, queen, preach. I am absolutely wary. I'm absolutely like, "Mm." it's like, I mean. It's like an immediate red flag. Like, Absolutely. Hold up, hold up. It's like like that Iyanla meme. That's one of my favorite. You know I love my Iyanla. You love Iyanla. But <laughs> you know it's the one where she, she sits her up. She goes, hold up. It's like we got to pause. We got we to gotta just stop everything. Stop the presses. Because we need to take everything in and make sure we're on the right path. You know the Iyanla memes a lot better than I do. Sir. I'm sorry. That's one of my favorite ones. You are really into the Iyanla memes. It just gets to the heart. Does it? It does. Most of her memes do. Just like the one she's talking to when she goes, you are a hot mess. Like, it just gets straight to the heart. If only Iyanla could use her memes on herself. Or or gutter snipe. Straight up out of the hood. You know, just like, gets like. If only Iyanla could use those memes to help her with herself. (laughs) Or if she actually ever fixed a life. She, she, she assists. Iyanla is that auntie. That gives you advice that you ain't never asked for. And you be looking like, auntie, 
I love you but so they, much. But they go on her show. They ask for her advice. They they're there because they want her advice. Not all them people go on there because they ask her. Some of the people is recruited for good TV. But anyways, mm. anyways, all I'm saying is, Iyanla ain't never fixed a life. Ain't, ain't near one life that got fixed and stayed fixed. And I love her because she everybody auntie. She everybody got that auntie. Yeah, everybody yeah. got that Iyanla auntie. Yeah. We all got one. We, yeah. They should have named the show something else. Auntie Yanla. They should have named her Auntie that, Yanla. That would have worked. Because she always done somebody's business. Anyway. <laughs> my point being. My point being. Hold up. That's the point. Darren. I'm sorry. I'm done. You need to go to bed. My point being. To the point of this question. That when there are. It's not about white people liking you. It's about outsiders who wield a specific power and a power that is disproportionately wielded against people like you right that's the concern right so when a whole bunch of men are like yeah women's march or when a whole bunch of able-bodied people are like yeah i want to do this work with these disabled people or a whole bunch of cis people like yes trans lives matter i think that anybody who is at that margin and who is experiencing that form of oppression and who has been experiencing it will be cautious and wary. And the reason why is because there are not a lot of incentives for those in dominant positions, positions of power, to acquiesce that power in order to advocate or to diminish their role for the purposes of empowering and respecting the rights of those who don't have that same power. It, you know what I'm saying? So it's not. It's not like... Oh, white people like me, so now I'm scared. It's more like there's an outsider, and this outsider has the ability to really fuck my life up. I mean, this outsider could really do some damage to me. And I don't know how to navigate this relationship with them or whether or not to trust them because they have the ability to manipulate this situation in ways that I have no control over. And right. so what happens to the quality of my life and what happens to my longevity and my livelihood when this person, you know, or this group decides to no longer be, and this is in air quotes, an ally. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, and truthfully, you know, to me, it always comes down to the message. Like usually when, when someone is in that type of, some type of position, like I'm out here and I, I have a message, I have a platform, I have a goal and I'm trying to achieve some type of goal. And then when someone from some type of, you know, greater power base comes in, it's almost like they then have the ability in a lot, in a lot, of, in a lot of ways to co-opt that message and to not only take it, but then turn it and pervert it into something else to water it down, to, to use it for their own means. And, and I think that's part of what that kind of like that threat that you're talking about, it's am I going to be able to keep doing the work that I'm doing or is it going to be taken out of my hands? Right. Is, am I going to lose the control? Is my power going to be stripped away? There, there, that's, there's a real kind of threat there that I think is very immediate and very present. Right. And we just saw this with the Me Too movement, right? I mean, we saw, exactly. we saw a lot of people at the margins. We saw folks of color who have been leveraging conversations around Me Too for a number of years. And then we saw predominantly white activists in Hollywood who decided to like kind of coin the term out of like thin air. 
and they're showing up on the covers of magazines and Rose McGowan out here trying to have a reality TV show. And now I was in the bookstore the other day and she has a whole memoir now and an album. And I'm just like, wait, you know, that that concerns me. And I keep thinking about activists like Tarana Burke, who were starting campaigns like Me Too, you know, a decade or more ago. And then Alyssa Milano and like Taylor Swift, you know, go to Twitter and it's like, oh, these young white women are using their platforms to speak out about Me Too. And it's sad because, to be honest, Toronto Burke's been doing that work, but we really wouldn't have really heard about it if it hadn't been for the Harvey Weinstein controversy. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it's like, what does that say about the ways that we think about social desirability and white people liking you and white people paying attention to your concerns? Well, and that, I think that's the thing. I think that's the important point here. And I think that's what really gets to the question, like, is when you are that person and you have that message and then white people say, oh, I hear you, I see you, and I like you. Let's elevate you. And then there's almost like a a pressure, but then also kind of like a responsibility, like, okay, wait, I'm now giving access. I'm I'm now getting getting the keys to the kingdom. My my platform is growing. I should run with this, right? I should just say, yeah, let's go. Right. Let's lock our arms and let's, you know, right. march up the street together. Right. But there's so there's so many things that you also have to be aware of in that moment so that you stay on message and that right. you stay on the actual goals that you kind of built your whole original right. platform around. Right. And you don't you don't you, you don't chase, you know, the platform and the growth and the and the the awareness and the, you know, quote unquote fame. Right. And you still say, focus on, I have a goal that I'm trying to achieve. Right. And I think that's where there's that fine line of when people like you and you try to, you try to appeal more to the like versus the actual goals. Exactly. It's like, what is the work? Like the work has to be good. And I mean, it it goes without saying like capitalism itself is based in anti-blackness, heterosexism, cis-sexism, whiteness, patriarchy, middle-class normativity. I mean, the process of making money and growing one's generational, intergenerational wealth is based in the process of exploiting others, right? You know, old school Marxist socialist understandings of the ways that systems worked always talked about how people were basically units of labor. And if we understand that, then then we have to understand that this system is not actually created to see people at the bottom of that system, those individual units of labor that are of the least worth in that system, as valuable. They're fungible. They're replaceable. They are items. They are commodities. And in a system like that, if you are a young person of color, a queer person, a disabled person, a trans person, you know, who is at the margins of the margins, and you are an activist and you are doing work in your community, in your network, in your circle, and people are not paying attention. And then one day they are, it's really rough to negotiate that boundary, right? To negotiate the tenuousness of, you know, I'm in this system where I have to survive. I need to be able to eat. I need to be able to breathe. I need to be able to live. At the same time, I know that this system is made to exploit and annihilate me, right? And that's always that's always the risk. Like that's always a kind of 
process of mitigation and tension and negotiation that has to happen. Like how much do I want to participate in this system? And it's not like we can fully opt out. I mean, I'm in the academy. I'm participating in a system that is overwhelmingly white and male. I mean, that's what I'm doing right now. And I've been doing it to survive for as long as I can remember. That's what I've been doing, you know? Mm -hmm. And a lot of us do. A lot of us go work in corporate America and we learn how to code switch. We learn how to talk to people who don't look like us. We learn how to talk to outsiders. And we have our own personas and our own understandings of the world and our own worldviews. And we build worlds together. We build worlds with other people like us. But they're away from the world that is the dominant world, that is the white world, that is the cis-sexist world, that is the heterosexist world, that is the middle-class, able-bodied world. We build worlds away from that world, you know? And that's what E.B. Du Bois is talking about when he's talking about double consciousness. We have a double consciousness. And so I think the question is actually really interesting because I think what it also implies is that these two worlds have to intersect. And I don't think that they do. I actually don't think that they do. I think like for me in particular, you know, I'm very aware of the world that I participate in as like my day job, (laughs) but I'm also aware of the world that I'm building as my life, you know, Mm, you know, like, you know, I work so that I can eat, you know what I'm saying? But I hustle and grind so that I can live. Well, you know, I'm going to have a real honest moment. Okay. A real honest moment. So we we've had, you know, a web presence. We've been writing. We've had our website for years. We've been now doing this podcast. We've had our first season. We're in season two. And the more we do, the more people know us, the bigger presence we have, the bigger association people have. And the entire time I've had crazy anxiety around being spotted in certain circles. Yeah. I I have gone to great lengths to make sure when Monday through Friday, when I walk out the door and I go to work and I do what I got to do and make my check and, you know, bring that money home so we can live and survive and thrive, that that is a completely separate thing Mm -hmm. from this entire other world that I live where I'm writing, you know, (laughs) all these things on the web and, Mm -hmm. you know, and we're publishing this podcast on the web. Like I keep all those things very, very separate. Mm -hmm. But I'm also very aware of the fact that at some point there, there is a breaking point where those two things can't be 100% separate. Yeah. If, if, if we continue to grow and get bigger and more people know us and more people see us and, and I'm, I mean, you've, you've had television interviews, mm-hmm. you've, you've sat on panels, you know, pe- people have seen us, people have recognized us in the street and said, Hey, that's that black couple. Right. It gets to a point where I'm not going to be able to keep those things separate. Right. And that is, that is something that for me is a very, very serious issue because right. I do like to keep those things separate for the very exact reason that you're talking about because of that double consciousness. Right. Because because of saying, I have this world for this means and this purpose, and I have this world for this means and this purpose. Right. And this one that's, you know, more of the worldly societal right. function right. is something that's transactional. Right. 
I operate within that world so I can get certain things out of it. Right. I code switch when I go into it. Right. I know what the rules are. I right. know how to navigate and negotiate in there right. so I can survive and get what I need. Right. And then when I can exit out of it, which I have a definite exit point every day. Absolutely. I, I exhale. I did. And I, I relax my back. And right. I throw my head back and I, you know. Say, whew, yep. got through another one. Yep, yep. And then I come home and I go back to my actual home, what I would say is like my real world. Right. Where I feel most comfortable and where I can be my 100% true self. Right, right. Um, and I think I, I, I really wanted to, I had that thought in the moment. And I really want to say that out loud for our listeners. Yeah, that's because dope. Number one, I know there's a lot of people who totally get that right they're probably doing the exact same thing that i am right but then especially within the context of this question i think there's probably a lot of people that don't understand right that that is kind of what absolutely. a lot of people go through in a daily cycle absolutely absolutely and i appreciate that I, I appreciate you saying that because i think that to some degree i opt out of that other world right. i mean you every day go into a corporate position i quit corporate america and i have no intention of going back I don't care what they offer me. That's not happening for me. No, that's not going. I can never do it again. I wasn't made for it. Some people can do it. I commend y'all. It's not for me. I tried it. Can't do it. Right? And I I opted out of that world because I absolutely could not survive there. There wasn't enough code switching for me to be able to do it. And I'm in the academy now. And so there's obviously ways that I interact with maleness and heterosexism and whiteness and middle-classness and well-to-do-ness and all that and patriarchy every single day but to some degree i'm able to also opt out of that because of the structure of the academy right so the way that the academy is structured is that i don't have you know a set of hierarchies i don't have a direct relationship to a manager nobody signs a paycheck for me right now because I'm a graduate student. Mm -hmm. So now at some point I'm going to come up for tenure. And so this will be a different conversation. (laughs) So maybe in a year or two, but even then it's still a different structure. It's still a different structure. Right. And so maybe, but who knows, maybe I'll be saying something different. I don't know, (laughs) but right now I don't have that structure, you know, and it's a, it's a different set of rules. It's a different set of rules that I adhere to. And so I, I opt in, to a certain set of those rules that I'm okay with. And the others, I just say, fuck it, I'm not doing it, right? And I think that's really at the base of this question too, is like when we are advocating for black liberation, when we are advocating for black lives, for me, I'm really willing to do just about fucking anything, right? I'm really willing to do anything for black liberation. And that means I spend a lot of time not going to sleep, It means I spend a lot of time going and giving talks when I feel like I'm about to pass out. A lot of times when I should be laying on my couch and I'm out the house. You know what I'm saying? A lot of political organization and education with people's kids who disrespect me and treat me like shit. (laughs) You know, it's a lot of things that I go and do, you know, that I'd be like, man, I would love to go lay down and rest. Right. But that's the kind of stuff I'm willing to do for black liberation. It's another story when it gets to that other world and I'm not willing to do that for those other systems of domination and oppression. I will not do it. Yeah. I will not capitulate to whiteness. I will not work to assimilate into systems that are inherently not made for me. I did that in my early twenties. I did that in my mid twenties. I did. I did because I was under the impression that that was how you 
survive. You know, I was under the impression that assimilation was a real thing and that not only was it a real thing, it was the basis of citizenship. Mm, Yes. It was the basis of belonging. And when I figured out that my citizenship and belonging was actually a part of this other world that I was building, I no longer needed to worry about whiteness, maleness, heterosexist issues, patriarchy, middle-classness, able-bodiedness. I didn't have to worry about all that stuff because first of all, I didn't fit into it anyway. But second of all, I didn't have any incentive to try because I had a whole other world that I already belonged to and a whole other world where I was already a citizen. And it's kind of funny because I keep thinking about how everybody says, I'm from Wakanda. And every time I say that, I'm like, I'm from Oakland. (laughs) (laughs) That's my tribe. (laughs) Like, I go back to Oakland and everybody knows me. Like, I know my people. I know my family. I go to Evergreen. My people know me. You know what I'm saying? Like, I go to my hood. I go to my block. People know me. That's my tribe. Those are my people. And that's a world that was built, you know, for me, that I built, that I cultivated. And that will always be the world that I built. And it will always be outside of a white gaze. It will always be outside of a middle class gaze. And it will always be something that drives me toward black liberation. That is what drives me toward black liberation. And so I'm not really concerned about cultivating a white audience. Mm-hmm. Because I'm so concerned about black liberation. But I, and I think that's what's happening now. I think that's kind of what is a big movement that's happening right now is people really realizing that kind of chasing like white ad- admiration or a white audience is not really something that they're too concerned with. It's not something that's a driving force behind their actions. Like and I think Black Panther is an interesting one to bring up because I, I feel like you see black black audiences going you know going in droves over and over and over to see this movie and kind of not really caring like i mean all the conversation is around black people going to the movies we we know white people are going i, I right. looked at the numbers recently and i mean it's a lot of white people going i mean overwhelming like when you look on average it's way more black people than usual right but it's still mostly white people that are going right. to the movie like, right we i mean we just look at the numbers there's not enough black, black people, people to, to, make it, to make these exactly numbers, right? exactly but the conversation is look how many more black people than usual right. are going right? right but we still know of course the white people are going right but they're that's not the audience that's being chased exactly right? and i feel like and i feel like that's the same thing that happened when we started our website and I feel like that's what's happening too is a lot of people are, are saying I'm kind of going out and I'm creating these places that are for black people. Right. And like we created water cooler convos and we said we're creating this website and it's a website for black people. Right. And like, like I always say, we, we've had people come to our website and be like, Oh my gosh, why are you saying that? Why are you doing that? I can't believe that. And we basically respond to them and say, well, this is a site for black people. It's a site for black people. You can come and look at it if you want. It's, it's I can't put up any free ninety nine. It's on the web, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, there's no means that we can say like we can't block you. We can't like put like a like a checker, you know, that the screen will scan please, you and say, please enter your race. You're not black enough. You can't enter this website. Please, so scan, you can access scan your wrist. You are too light to be on our site. <laughs> no, we don't have that. But, but. But at the same time, this is a site for black people. It's written by black people. And the audience that we are primarily serving is black people. So right. that's that's who it's for. Right. If you get something out of it, great for you. Good if for you. You read it and it pisses you off. Sorry. Girl. But 
not sorry. Good luck. Right? This is for black people. And right. I feel like it's the same thing with that black couple. Right? Absolutely. Like, this is a podcast for black people. By black people. By black people. Anyone can listen to it if they want to. It's free 99. If you get something out of it, I love it. That's great. Congrats. But but that's still like like in the thought process of right. any episode that right. we put together, it's never like, okay. What do the white people think? How are we gonna get <laughs> that's just I mean, that's just not Okay, now I know this is called that black couple, but let's think about the whites. <laughs> I, mean, tr- I mean and truthfully in a in a backwards way, I think that makes it even more valuable to white people. That it's not something that's like you know, especially, you know, catered. And, yeah, I and mean, I guess. Here's the thing. I'm not white. So I don't know how to make anything for a white person. That's true. I'm just going to be honest right now. I, I'm i not white. I don't have anybody white in my family. I grew up with all black people in the hood that's hella black. So I don't understand why anybody and this is not the just the wrong this is actually just speaking now because i feel like we answered the question well and, and we and kind of to to your point like we've we've heard we've this talked a lot about this a lot other... yeah we've had people actually ask us like why can't you write more about white people and i'm like well listen i'm not white and you actually shouldn't want me to do that i don't want white people writing about black people and i don't think latinx folks want me writing about them and i don't think that i want latinx folks writing about me I mean, I'm serious. Like, I don't want men writing about women. I don't want trans folks writing about cis folks, cis folks writing about trans folks. And the, th- the reason why is, well, actually, I actually think that trans folks should write about cis folks because cis folks are trash. And to be honest, <laughs> to be honest, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but But they shouldn't have to is what I'm saying. Right. And I don't think I should have to and I should not be expected to write about someone or a group of someone's who are in a dominant position over me, right? Like there is enough data out there about cis folk. There are enough narratives out there about cis folk. There's enough data out there about white folk. There's enough stories and podcasts. There are so many podcasts that are led by white, cis, heterosexual, able-bodied men. Just, I mean, just go to there the homepage so of iTunes. Many. I mean, my God. There are so many. And they're doing very well. And they make millions of dollars by saying, like, weird stuff. And that, there's plenty of people out there. If you want to find a podcast about white people, you will not have a hard time doing that. I mean, you really, really, really won't. But if you really want to hear some genuine, like, conversations about what it means to be not in a dominant group, and not in a position of power and not in at these intersections of heteronormativity and patriarchy and cisgenderness and maleness and middle-classness and you know like if you want to actually do that then there are actually places for you to find that out and this happens to be one of them i mean this just happens to be one of them and that is not a process of exclusion what's really funny is that people often think that if you as a person at the margins of anything, don't focus on the people who are marginalizing you. You are somehow marginalizing them. Like that's possible. Exactly. It's reverse racism or whatever. And it's like, you do realize that me speaking as a member of my group 
me speaking as who I actually am does not marginalize you, right? It doesn't marginalize someone else. What it actually does is it actually adds volume and context to the larger system of which we are all a part, right? It gives color, no pun intended, but it gives color and a dynamic nature to the world that we all happen to be a part of together because we actually exist and we're actually real. We're actually real humans and we're already inside of the world. It's not like I'm talking about unicorns and dragons. I'm not like, hey, these black people, you know, they're on this Game of Thrones thing and they come out of the sky and then they freeze and they turn into zombies. No, there's fucking black people. Like we actually are here. We actually do stuff and we like walk around and we like think things and we like live around like in the neighborhoods where like other people are living. You know, it's like this is not this is not rocket science. Like we're talking about being us. And that should not be like, I feel excluded because you know what? If that's how somebody feels when they hear somebody who's different from them speaking out as a person who they are, then they are the problem. They are one of those people, a part of that group of people in the world who believes that if something goes against the status quo, the status quo that is often exclusionary, harmful, oppressive, then then the people who are making them feel that discomfort, they are wrong. And there's no critical thinking about it. There's no interrogation. There are no questions because why they are out of, they don't they are out of sorts and they don't feel comfortable. And honestly, I'm not catering to nobody like that. I don't care what race they are, to be honest with you. It's a whole lot of black folk who are well to do elites who feel like, oh, you talking about black poor people? <gasps> Clutch my pearls. Uh-uh. You can go too. <laughs> oh, yeah. We've talked about that on Listen, the website too. Listen, you can go too. Anybody who is in a position of power, who wields a certain amount of power that upholds a system, anybody who uses their power to gain proximity to a white supremacist, white order of things, and uses that in a way that reestablishes and reproduces those systems, I'm not fucking with you. I'm not fucking with you. That's just the bottom line. If you get proximity and access and what you do with it is reproduce the ill shit, we're not cool. Because that's that's not liberation. It's not liberation. And I'm not with it. And so I guess my answer is like this. I'm not really checking for like anybody who's in a position of power. I'm just not. I've never been good with authority. But if you're in a position of power and you like, listen, I'm not going to use it in a way that's harming you. I'm just going to try and give it up. Give it up. Give it up. That's what you should be doing with it. If you are in a position of power, if you have proximity and access and you have resources and you have money, give it away. Give it away. Give it to people who need it. Right? Like if you got some coin, give it away. Give it to people who are at the margins. Give it to the Chicago Bell Fund. Give it to Appalachian. Give it to these programs that are trying to actually dismantle systems that keep us incarcerated and undereducated and not able to actually buy food, living in food deserts. Give it to people in Flint. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's plenty of things you can do with it. But I'm not really about to sit here and spend my life trying to figure that out for you. Like, that's on y'all. Like what you hear? You can find my mom and dad, a.k.a. 
That Black Couple on the web at thatblackcouple.com. You can find them on Facebook at That Black Couple, and you can find them on Instagram and Twitter at That BLK Couple. If you have questions or comments about the show, email them at thatblkcouple at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And we are back. We're back. It is time for the reflection. Mm-hmm. And so, in this episode, I'm kind of thinking, you know, what what's the kind of final resolution here? Like, what are our final thoughts? What's, right. What's the actual answer we have for this question? Right. And I'm not really sure we have much of an answer other than we're not really doing anything for white people. Not in particular. Not in particular. That's that's not the goal. That's no. not the aim. And that's not really something that's factored into the thought process. No. So whenever kind of white people show praise or, or adoration or are kind of signal boosting or whatever, I feel like that's great. That's, that's amazing. That's gravy. Yeah. It's appreciated. That's wonderful. I'm always shocked because I feel like I'm kind of harsh. I agree. I, I I think that's. I the, mean, I told them to follow the IPA truck. Didn't I say that? You did. You I did said Puncho Amy's. I mean, I've really taken it there. You said, you said some things. So shout out to y'all for hanging after that. Yeah, I mean, if you can if, if you can weather the storm. I hope y'all actually punched your Amy's though. <laughs> I really want somebody to write in and say I actually punched my Amy's. Listen, not everyone is built for violence. I mean, but but you don't. It doesn't have to be a physical punch. It could be you know just you can punch people yeah, with your words. Yeah, I mean you can do a you can do a um you know a proverbial punch. Yeah, yeah. I mean cuss her out at least. Yeah, if you have a racist ain't in the year of our Lord two thousand eighteen, do something. You know. I mean, damn. Turn the cable off. You know. So yeah, something shiesty. No, no more prices, right? Oh my gosh. Take her shows. That's a gut punch. Oh my god, the the soap operas. No more soaps. No, no more. This is us. Oh, listen, listen, listen. There are things you can do. That's low. But then you got to actually be like, it was me, <laughs> and I'm doing this because you're racist. Mic drop. <laughs> you know, you can't just do it and be on the slide. You need to say, Annie, Annie Violet, or whatever her name is, and Annie Susan, Esther. Annie Esther, Annie Linda, I did it because you are racist bitch, and I didn't want to physically punch you in the throat, so instead, I took your cable away, and now we're going to talk about this racist shit. You know? And I'm not paying the bill. Not paying it. Until you get your mind right. Until you stop this racist shit. This is my little circle. This is me starting at home. I'm starting small. And this is what I'm doing to change the world in my little circle. And when you go to bingo, you share this news you, with your and friends. And you tell your friend, Barbara. You tell Cindy Lou. And Agatha. And Marianne. And you tell them to stop this racist shit. I know they all think that they've accomplished something in their lives because they watch on Hulu. They watch Handmaid's Tale. And they think that they know about women's issues now. And they think that because she has a you know, a black friend and a black husband that they've really started thinking differently about race. It's not enough. You need to do more, Annie. Annie Susan. I'm sorry, you had a reflection. Go ahead. Honestly, I but I do feel like if white people listen to us, they should at least do something. I agree. Go do something. I agree. Shit. 
But I think, honestly, I think kind of what you said kind of led in the right direction as well. Because the other thing I kind of wanted to speak on is when we started this episode, we talked about how there's like a kind of fear and like a pressure of when you when you get some more support and when back white people are kind of behind you, it's like, oh, well, maybe I need to change things up. Maybe I need to do something. I need to make sure I keep these people and keep these followers and backers because I don't want to lose what I've gained. The thing, the thing is, I think as a black person, you can also kind of feel that. Like, I feel like that's a very palpable, right. tangible thing. Right. Right. When, when you feel that pressure to change who you are or to, to be something else or when uh, the people behind you are basically saying, hey, I'm supporting you. So now you should go and say the things that I want you Absolutely. to say and be the person that I want you to be. Absolutely. Even though I came and supported you. And, and liked you when you were doing something else. Right. Like that's, it's, it's not like people don't realize that that's happening. It's not like you can't feel that, that like the sand moving be, beneath your feet. Like, right. Like we know that that's happening. And I, my thing is when, when I, when, when we were talking about this question and saying, okay, well, what do we, what do we want to bring up? The first thought that came to mind for me was when I was in like elementary school and coming up all the way through like junior high school and high school. And, you know, I've talked about this before. I grew up in orange County is not a whole lot of black people there. No, it's not. Um, I think I, you know all of them. Probably most, of, most <laughs> if not all of them. Um, and and honestly, I also went to almost all private schools growing up. Mm-hmm. So that you know, whenever I talk about like my schooling growing up, I went to school with with white people, and I went to school with Asian people, and I went to school with Indian people. So white and asian people was basically mm-hmm. my whole pool mm-hmm. of people that i of kids that i knew growing up mm-hmm. and so as like that one black kid who was tall who was athletic like i constantly had this relationship with people where it was like oh well you're like inherently cool because mm. you're different or you're great at sports oh god or like you know you, you fit in really well with my group of friends. And so I was always navigating from a very early age kind of what my blackness meant for other people and how that could be how that could be commodified. Right. And like I said, from a very early age, I was very aware of that. Like right. it wasn't like I didn't understand what's happening until until I turned 14. I was like, oh, my God, that's why you liked me. That's why. <laughs> That's why you want to be my friend. It wasn't because you thought I was cool. It was because you realized, you know, like I knew that. Right. And I think that's an important thing for people to realize that, you know, we we know what's happening. Like, right. We know what the game is and we are trying to work within that system in a lot of ways. Right. But I think more, most importantly, we're trying to I think a lot of people are always trying to figure out where they draw the line. Right. Where they draw the line between I'm working within the system and I'm tolerating it. And where they say, I'm not doing that. Right. And I'm stopping. Right. And I think what we do with the work that we do is we basically say, there is no line. Right. Like, we don't give up anything. Right. Absolutely. And I think that's how it should be. Yeah, I agree. At one point, I think I just took myself back from the world. I was like, I'm not giving myself away anymore. Yeah. And it's interesting because this question came up kind of in the um, talk that I gave last week at a um at the policy school at u chicago and it was actually a room full mostly mostly young women of color and i think they were all like graduate students at the Harris school of public policy and i was noticing that a lot of their questions were like how do you navigate when 
you know, your department wants you to focus on these types of methodological approaches, but you really want to focus on these or how do you navigate when you have, you know, friends who say that gender and race are not an issue, but clearly it is for you because you're at the intersections of gender and race. And how do you navigate, like not dealing with like the appeal of trying to be liked by like predominantly white male colleagues and like also trying to be honest and work hard for the work that you do. And I was like, wow, we are all grappling with this. I mean, these were all young women of color who were asking me these questions and they were all grappling with this process, this tension between how to navigate like being who they are, doing the work that they want to do that they think is clearly important, that deals with communities of color, that deals with young women, that deals with folks who are like them and from places where they're from. But the academy or people in their departments telling them that they have to do this other stuff or they have to be this other thing. And it made me sad, but I told them, I was like, listen, to be honest with you, I was like, I don't do that shit anymore. Like, I just don't participate anymore. Like, at some point, I just said, no thanks. Like, no thanks. And one girl, I asked her, I was like, do you want to do that work? And she was like, nah. And I was like, so don't do it then. I mean, what's going to happen? We operate from a place of scarcity and a place of fear. So we feel like we have to appeal to whiteness because we're afraid of what might happen if we don't. Right? Right. Like, we feel like we have to get in line. We have to follow the status quo because we're afraid that if we don't, we might be worse off than we were before. We are worried that there might be some type of punishment or some type of consequence. And I think for me, because I ended up homeless so early, you know, I've kind of been like, you know, fuck it. Can't get no worse than that. I mean, I think because I experienced homelessness in high school and was like abandoned by my parents and didn't really have shit going into college that now I'm like, shit, I actually done worked and got some money in the savings and can write some stuff so I can get paid for it. So I'm still better off than I was back then. So I'll take it. I mean, I'll risk it for that. You know what I'm saying? And I know that for a lot of people, they're not willing to risk so much. They're not. I mean, I always joke that I always go nuclear. Like people really should never come for me. They should never try me because I go nuclear like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like It's quick, right? Anybody can catch these hands. Breakneck. Anybody can catch these hands. <laughs> I don't care who you are. But I mean, my point being that like, we have to figure out what we're willing to do. And then we have to be okay with it. I don't appeal to whiteness. It's not something that I do. Now, that doesn't mean I don't have white friends. I have some dear white friends who I deeply love, who I, I, I would not trade for the fucking world. My white friends also are critical of whiteness. They're critical of white supremacy. They understand my situatedness and their situatedness. They're critical of power. You know, they, they have lenses that are actually more critical than a lot of other people of other races and backgrounds that I know. And I wouldn't fuck with them if they didn't, right? I mean, so it's not, I also want to dismantle this idea that it's like a black, white binary too. Mm. It's just not that simple. It's really just not that simple. What we're really talking about here is how do people on an outside group, specifically a black group, how do black folks appeal to certain positions of power? Because we have to, in some cases, in order to survive or in order to push certain agendas. 
if we need certain resources, if we want to build a school, if we want to keep a school open, if we want to push Black Lives Matter, if we want gun reforms, if we want to work in coalition with Latinx groups and Asian American groups and white folks who are working for, you know, LGBTQI rights. Like we have to do a number of things where we often have to engage with other groups who have more power than us and more status than us. And it's not always comfortable because we often get co-opted. And it's very, it's very, it's very discomforting. And it's also also very disappointing because unfortunately, a lot of those folks let us down. And they don't they don't do what they say they're gonna do or what they should do, right? If they're actually yeah. about black liberation. Yeah. So my point is, are we appealing to whiteness for the purpose of trying to get in good with whiteness? Or are we like breaking shit down are we getting in there and disrupting are we getting in there and taking shit and bringing it back to our hoods like i'm totally okay with somebody participating in like a system or a predominantly white institution or a funding structure that is predominantly white or historically white for the purpose of taking that stuff and giving it to black people for free i have no problem with that at all i love taking stuff from one group that has power and giving it to another group that don't have as much power for free. It's Robin Hood. <laughs> it's like, I will do that all day. I don't know if there's a really good answer because I think it's situational. And I think there's different times when you have to basically function differently. But I know for me, I do not appeal to people in power. And I'm not about treating people according to status. I respect people based on how, how morally and philosophically they are committed to justice and liberation for everybody. If they out here treating people like shit, they're not going to catch no respect from me. They might catch these hands. They ain't catching no respect, though. (laughs) Thank y'all for listening. Before you go, make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ThatBLKCouple, on Facebook at ThatBlackCouple, and look us up on the internets at www.ThatBlackCouple.com. Bye!